I'm going to read from uh, Revelation chapter 15, verse 5, all the way to the end of chapter 16. John tells us, After this I looked, and in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the testimony, was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. And I heard a loud voice from the temple say to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. And the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. And the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead man, and every living creature thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness, and men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. And they are the spirits of demons performing miraculous signs. And they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. And they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on the earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away. The mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds fell upon men. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible.
That's probably showing. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, these uh, words, even at first reading, are shocking. We ask that you will help us to understand them. And Lord, give us a deeper, more rounded, more full understanding of who you are. Help us, Lord, to honestly and sincerely study your word and seek to understand it so that we can know you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, it is, it's official this week, I think. Religion is good for you. I've seen this week, they seem to have all crowded together, several different uh, bits of evidence. Reviews of scientific papers, for instance, which suggested that religious people live longer. Did you uh, see that at all? Or that those who have a sincere faith and attend church are psychologically more stable and happy. It's all been researched and written up, apparently. I've seen an article from a learned journal, actually, that described an experiment which strongly suggested that intercessory prayer can help in uh, recovery from illness. At the end of the 20th century, it seems that people are very, very open to the possibility that Christian faith might do us some good. Perhaps then a wise church should make much of this, do you think? I mean, if we invited Alistair Campbell or one of his um, fellow sultans of spin down to uh, give us advice about how to market ourselves, I'm sure he would advise a strategic uh, press release or an attractive banner or something like that. A carefully phrased manifesto, perhaps. Um, feeling down, come to Maudlin Road, the mood-enhancing church. Or frightened of dying, come to Maudlin Road Church and live a little bit longer. Actually, you know, many churches have basically taken that line. And it's not entirely wrong. Christian uh, faith and a Christian lifestyle are good for us. And there's no, nothing wrong with uh, saying that very loud and very clear. But I do have a hesitation. It's this. I think if we concentrate solely on the immediate benefits of Christianity, then we distort or, or worse, even miss the main thrust of what the Bible is saying to us. That we end up with a with a message which, by the Bible's standards, is actually trivial. Frankly, it trivialises our problem for a start. You now, our main problem is not the shortness of our life or psychological maladjustment or illness. Our main problem, the Bible says to us loud and clear, is that in our natural states we turn our backs on God with terrible consequences trivializes our hope too. Christian hope is not that we will be happier or healthier or live a little bit longer. Primarily, the Christian hope is that we will find eternal life, that we will find absolute eternal forgiveness from God through Christ's death on the cross. That's what we've just been celebrating. 
But I think more profoundly than either of those, it's uh, such, such, a, such a message actually trivialises God. Because it portrays God as a sort of heavenly dispenser of goodies, doesn't it? Now, if you don't fancy Prozac, try religion. If you don't trust the NHS, try prayer. No wonder ordinary people doubt that God has anything profound to say in the, in the real world, where there are pains far deeper than Prozac could ever heal, where there is an illness that is endemic to all mankind called death that the NHS can do very little about. A real God is far from trivial. He is the creator of the world. He is eternal. He looks on the, on the world today as it damages itself and he is horrified because he is a holy God. That word holy describes utter, awesome, even terrifying perfection. He doesn't rush around, you see, like some, uh, some manic Father Christmas saying, ho, 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 and desperately uh, trying to dole out presents to people to make them feel a little better for a little while. That is not the God of the Bible. He is the one and only perfect creator of this world and as he looks at the mess that human beings have got this world into, he is angry. In fact, at the end of our study passage, it says literally that he is furiously angry. Now, that, actually, that single idea about God arouses the most profound emotions in, in people. How then can a God of love be angry? Well, I want to turn that question around. How can a God who is perfect not be angry? Now, surely for, the, for God to look on this world as it, as it really is, not as our childish fancies might like it to be, but as it really is, for God to look on the real world and not be angry, would not be a sign of his uh, moral greatness. It would not be a sign then that God was a, a, a wonderful, perfect God who, who, uh, who has infinite resources of forgiveness. In the end, if there is no anger in the heart of God, it has to mean that God doesn't care about right and wrong. And the real God does care. So the real God must be angry. Now, of course, it would be quite wrong to overstate God's anger. God's not essentially in himself an angry deity. The Bible says very clearly God is love, and it does never say God is anger. Anger is what the great 16th century reformer Martin Luther described as God's strange work. It's not his natural state. It's a, it's a response, 
if you like it, which, which is drawn out of him as the only response that he can give to a world that has gone so far wrong. And nor will God's anger last forever. Oh, that God's purpose is that one day he is going to bring about a, a, a new heaven and a new earth. He is going to completely renew, even recreate this universe. And he is going to populate it with all those people, living and dead, who have sought his forgiveness and committed their lives to him. And then his anger will be at an end. This is an interim state while the world still rebels against him and damages itself. But in this passage before us, we've been shown, uh, even on a cursory reading, that his anger is very real and very terrifying, isn't it? I want to uh, spend uh, our time, in fact, this morning trying to understand, trying to get a, uh, at least the beginnings of a grasp of why God is angry. How can God be angry? First thing that I want to uh, see from uh, uh, this passage is that God is angry because the whole of his world is corrupted. This series of seven plagues that we read about stands as the climax of a series of cycles of seven that we've seen in Revelation so far. Uh, if you've been here, you will remember them, I hope. First, there were the seven seals being broken one by one on that scroll. Then there were the seven trumpets. And now there are these seven bowls of God's wrath. And the first time, as the seals were broken, we saw basically that the world is a mess. We got a, a, a big grasp of that, but uh, not too much detail in a sense. Then, as those seven trumpets were sounded, we saw that the, that, uh, this, the trouble in the world is partly at least God's warning to us. God is alerting us to the fact that there are real, malevolent, evil forces out there in the world that if we do not worship him, we put ourselves at their mercy. And as each of those seven trumpets was sounded, that became clearer and clearer. But people did not repent. Now we are uh, uh, going to see uh, what chapter 15, verse 1 describes as the seven last plagues. They are last, not in the sense, I think, that they come after the, uh, the seven trumpets. In fact, their characteristics uh, uh, in many ways are very similar to the, the, the trumpets and to the, the seven seals. Now they are last in the sense that when we have understood them, God has completed what he wants to say to us about the trouble that there is in this world. What is wrong with this world and how he reacts to it. Each, uh, as each of those uh, series of sevens came to an end, we saw that uh, they, were, they, they were on the verge of seeing Christ come again. Well, when the seven plagues have come to an end, then we will start to see a description of Christ coming again. 
which will become clearer and clearer for the rest of the book. These then are the, the seven last plagues. And they show God actually having starting to destroy the world in its entirety. This loud voice commands the seven angels to, to start pouring out their bowls of, uh, of wrath and terrible plagues uh, break out. But this time, each of the plagues is a total plague. The whole sea is turned to blood with the, uh, the second plague in, in, in verse 3. Every river and spring is turned to blood with the, the third plague. Every creature dies in the sea. When the trumpets were sounded several chapters ago, only a third of the sea became blood. But only a third of the living th creatures were killed then. But now it is everything. Uh, we saw when, the, when we looked at the trumpets that actually this plague of, of blood is very reminiscent of a plague God sent on, on the Egyptians when uh, he liberated his people Israel from Egypt. They, uh, those plagues were partly warnings, but partly too they were judgments. Now the warning part is over, and this is judgment, total judgment on this world. Almost as if God is decreating his world. If you read uh, the, the creation story in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, you find the sea being created. You find it being populated with all sorts of living things. You find springs and rivers that brought life to the world. And now... God is saying that when uh, Jesus comes again, he will have to reverse that whole process. So great is the corruption in the world. The world will not be made good then by just a little tinkering here, here and there. It is so distorted, so shot through with evil that God is going to have to bring everything to an end. And start again. Now we are shocked, I think, by uh, God's anger. Partly, at least, because we have so superficial a view of how much we have damaged our world. We think, with the perspective of the seven seals only, that life is just a mess and we better live with it. Or uh, we think, perhaps with the perspective of the trumpets, that uh, yes, there is an evil force, the devil out there, and he has caused a lot of this. We don't think any deeper than that. Because when we get deeper than that, we find, in fact, that as God looks on this world, it is totally corrupt. And the only thing he can do is start again. You know, at the end of a, a day's work at uh, his uh, factory, Josiah Wedgwood, who was one of um, England's greatest pottery manufacturers, used to go around and examine every plate and uh, piece of crockery that had been made that day. And he would ruthlessly smash every one that was imperfect because he would not allow anything that was less than perfect to leave his factory. Imagine Josiah Wedgwood going round day after day, year after year, examining the pottery that his people had made 
and having to smash every single one because of their negligence, because of their laziness, because they didn't take the care that he had asked them to do in making the pottery. Imagine how frustrated he would get. Imagine how that anger would rise in his heart. Well, God will not allow anything but perfection in his presence. And for millennia now, he has watched as people have damaged his world. Should he not be angry? Second thing that uh, we are told very, very clearly as these bowls of God's wrath are poured out, is that God's anger is just. It is righteous. We've already started to see that, but it becomes absolutely transparent in verse 5. Actually, it's the very angel who is responsible for the waters that God is cursing who actually gives the verdict that God has done the right thing. See that verse 5? Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. Even though it seems that this angel is, in part of the, is, is responsible for part of the ecosystem, actually the angel is, is supremely concerned about how God's people have been treated in this world. This is his reason why God should judge his world. For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. Don't be deceived that the world is not uh, like nice, comfortable Oxford by and large. I said a few weeks ago that there's more blood of Christian believers being shed at the end of the 20th century than at any time before. And the angels, even over the inanimate creation, recognize that that horror in this world justifies God starting again from scratch. He is just. We underestimate the seriousness of what mankind has done in this world. Actually, it's the altar in verse 7, which uh, adds, adds its own voice to it. And uh, back in chapter 6, we saw that the altar sheltered the souls of the martyrs who had lost their lives for their faith underneath it. And this altar reiterates what the angel over the waters has said. Verse 7, I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Now, at this point in, in uh, reading this chapter, there are bound to be people who are sitting here thinking, all oh, this is far, far too melodramatic. Okay, perhaps there are some people who, uh, who are particularly awful, who uh, need to be judged by God in this, this dramatic way. Perhaps it would be just in those circumstances. If you watched with me the, uh, uh, the first episode of the new BBC series Warriors last night, which depicted what was going on in Bosnia just a few years ago. You won't doubt that there are some people in this world 
who really need the fury of God's anger if there is to be justice in this world. But not everyone's a war criminal. Surely not everyone needs to be tarred with that brush. You know, in, in, in reply to that assertion, the Bible gives one of its most disturbing answers. The Bible tells us quite clearly that there are only two types of people. There are only two categories of human being. And they are defined by what or who they worship. Jesus called them the sheep and the goats. John has uh, in, it, it used a slightly different image to define those two groups. There is one group in the book of Revelation that has the mark of God put on them, God's seal placed on them. And there is another group, all the rest, who have the mark of the devil put on them. There are no innocent bystanders. People may knowingly have the mark of the devil put on them or unknowingly. But we are marked. We are sealed with a mark that one or other of those persons owns us. It's the whole group who are owned by the beast and therefore worship him who are judged with the first plague. Verse 2, the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land. Ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. Of course, everyone has to answer for their behaviour as individuals. And God does note good behaviour. It does not go unanswered. But the defining question that God asks every single human being throughout the world and throughout history is who or what did you worship? Oh, but you say, I don't worship anything at all. I, I, I'm free of that. Everybody worships something. Because worship is actually very simple. We worship what we place the highest value on. If we do not worship God, if we do not place the highest value on God, we oppose him and we worship something else. According to the, the, the Bible, then the whole of humanity is actually just two armies. There are no civilians. There may be conscripts uh, or volunteers in, uh, in the armies opposed to God, but there are no bad, uh, there are no bystanders. Can you imagine being part of an evil army? Can you imagine what it would feel like? To be under the orders of uh, perhaps people who we know are far, far worse than us. Perhaps uh, you think uh, you could do a little bit, help a few people, uh, uh, perhaps curb some of the worst atrocities. But you see, if we are marching with that army, we are implicated in that army's actions. 
I mean, the, in the earthly world, it may be right that sometimes people can't, uh, uh, can't defect or desert easily. One of the great truths of the Bible is that every single person is absolutely free to choose which army they belong to. Defection is entirely possible. And those who choose not to are responsible for their actions. And God is very aware then that there are two groups of humanity and only two. But he knows that we find that hard to believe. He knows that we think there is an infinite gradation of, uh, of people right across the, uh, uh, the spectrum. And that, of course, um, uh, the dividing line will uh, be the right side of us. So he starts to show us with the fourth, fifth, and sixth plagues what happens to humanity as they see God in his anger more and more clearly. See, God's judgment is, uh, is just. The Bible says very clearly. God's anger is fueled by people's persistent refusal to repent. We saw that actually happening as the, uh, the seven trumpets were sounded earlier on in uh, Revelation. There was warning after warning, but no repentance. But now we see it again, and we see people hardening themselves more and more deeply as they, uh, they experience God's anger more and more. Verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. The sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues. But they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness, and men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. They start cursing the name of God, and then they turn to, to God himself almost, curse the God of heaven. They are becoming more and more hardened in a deep and shocking way against God. And that's what happens, you know. In this country, before the uh, First World War, uh, the churches were very, very weak, but they were still relatively well attended. Most people called themselves Christians. After the carnage of the First World War, after people had seen the horrors of this world more clearly, they did not treat God in such a light way. There was a much smaller people group of people who were, had a deep and determined faith in God and a large number of people who decisively rejected God. People uh, feel the pain of this world more. They are divided. Actually, even looking at a passage like this divides people in a similar deep way. 
And we may have arrived here, perhaps feeling generally benevolent to, to, towards God, realizing uh, uh, um, that we didn't know him that well, but we were happy about that. But as we read passages like that, this, as we see God's fierce hatred of evil, people are divided. I don't doubt that there will be some people who leave here this morning who feel after seeing that, I hate God. Well, of course, if I've misrepresented God this morning, if, if I've explained things badly, if I, if, I, if I haven't made it clear enough, then we have every reason to reject that. I'm not infallible. But if honestly, as you look at this passage, and as we think about it together, you realize that this is what the passage says. And forget me, I'm irrelevant. We've got to do business with God himself. A God who is angry with this world. Actually, the sixth uh, plague almost uh, reinforces this, this great division with uh, what amounts to a, a terrible irony. Verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. Now, uh, when God delivered his people from Egypt, do you remember he, he dried up the Red Sea, he parted the Red Sea so that they could walk through on dry land? Well, later in, the, in, in Old Testament times, Israel was scattered from the promised land again, this time beyond the river Euphrates. And one of the things that God promised, especially in Isaiah chapter 11, was that God would bring his people back home yet again. And in chapter 11 of Isaiah, he describes dividing the Euphrates down into little rivulets so that people can just wade through to come back home to God. Well, this is almost a terrible parody of that promise. God dries up the river Euphrates. It doesn't even need to be waded through now. The kings of the east, those who are alienated from him, who are far from him, have the freedom to come back to him. But actually when they return, they don't come to worship him. They come to do battle against him, empowered by the devil himself. Verse 13, I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs, and they came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are the spirits of demons performing miraculous signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Such opposition then rises and rises and rises as people see the issues more clearly. Not everyone comes to God to worship him. But he will not tolerate that forever. No, there will come a last day. There will come a seventh and final plague, which is at the end of time. Verse 15, Behold, I come like a thief. 
Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. They gathered the kings together to the place in Hebrew that is called Armageddon. And the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the Great. We'll hear more about that next week. And gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds fell upon men and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. In the end, there will be people who have seen with absolute clarity the real God of the Bible and will curse him with their whole being. Now, I, I don't know what to say to that, really. Quite frankly, it is a really shocking message, isn't it? And I know it is a deeply unpopular message, even in churches. But it is the truth that we've been shown. A deeply, deeply painful truth. The Bible is absolutely clear that people are divided in two, and only two, by whether they worship the God of Jesus Christ or whether they don't. And until the issues are laid bare, it's sometimes difficult to see where people stand. People can have vague sympathies sometimes, which are actually disguised opposition. People can see a, seem a long, long way from Christ. But actually when the issues are really presented to them clearly, they see that they need to put their faith in Jesus Christ and his forgiveness. And that way is open until the last day when the divide is made absolute. And that day will come at a time that we don't know. Like a thief in the night. But that day will come. You know, one of the greatest preachers of the last 500 years was a man called uh, Jonathan Edwards who ministered in America. He preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's a very unpolitically correct title, isn't it? Actually, I noticed in, in the, the Times have brought out a book of the most important sermons of the last 2,000 years. And it includes that sermon. Because that sermon was uh, instrumental in uh, a, a major revival of real, joyous Christian life in the New England area. But it makes excruciating reading. 
I reread it uh, just this morning, and it's almost unbearable to read. In fact, it said that uh, uh, when it was originally preached, he preached it on several occasions, in, in at least one of the churches that he originally preached it in, people were crying out in the congregation for him to stop because it was so painful. And they recognized that every word of it was true. See, we can play with God if God is going to tell us just uh, that um, we can live a little bit longer or we can be a, bit, a little bit happier, he might help us cure a few illnesses. And, uh, you know, that's, a, that's a beanie baby God, that is. A useful ornament, something to play with, something to throw in the corner when we're, we're fed up with him. Actually, we could stop production at the end of this millennium, couldn't we? If we get fed up with God, like we're stopping the production of the beanie babies. Go on to something else. That's not the real God. No, the real God you do not play with. Because the real God divides people absolutely. When you see who he really is, you either worship him or you curse him. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we know that your main attribute is your love. We are told that again and again, that your love and your mercy and your forgiveness last forever. But, Lord, we pray that you would uh, help us never to forget that until the new heaven and the new earth is brought to its completion, you also have anger in your heart. Please, Lord, we pray, humble us before you. And draw us away from ever cursing you. Help us forever to worship you. In Christ's name. Amen.